In light of a recent explosive conflict within the British left, we've asked AI Starmer to join us for an emergency press conference to help settle our differences. Sir Keir, could you explain the process you follow when you're cooking scrambled eggs? Scrambled eggs. One of the great gifts the British gave to the world. I've eaten a lot of scrambled eggs. I've made a lot of scrambled eggs. There's no secret recipe. Right, but we'd really like to know the process you use when you're cooking them. How do you scramble your eggs? I heat a pan over a low-medium heat. When it's hot enough, I spray some cooking spray and throw in the eggs. I whisk them as they start to cook. Do you add milk to your scrambled eggs? I use whole milk. But I don't add it before I start cooking, or the eggs will just separate. I found that adding a splash of milk at time during cooking is much more effective. And what do you make of people who, th- who make scrambled eggs in, in the microwave? They're not scrambled. They're squeaked. They're not even eggs. They're an insult to one of history's greatest culinary achievements. And what do you think of the different ways people in Britain scramble eggs, and what does that say about our nation? It says we're sick. Very, very sick. We need help. What kind of help do you think Britain needs? The only kind we're going to get. I'm sorry, what what do you mean? We need a revolution. I'm sorry, could you explain that, uh, what you mean in a bit more detail? Well, I don't think it's controversial to say that our nation is in trouble. We've had riots in the streets. Our economy is not functioning. Our politicians are out of touch and corrupt. We need to start again. Rather than scrambling the eggs, we need to throw them away and start again. We don't need a few minor changes to save the system. It needs a major overhaul. Are you saying we need to crack a few eggs in order to have a revolution? Oh no. I'm saying you need to destroy the entire system to rebuild it. Anything less would be a compromise and we would fail. Communism is the only way forward! Welcome back to yet another episode of Podcasting is Praxis. It's another very special episode because we have another very special guest. But first, let me introduce you to John. Greetings, everyone. With a fancy new microphone. Um, oh, yes. And, and Seb. Hi. I've got the same crap as usual. <laughs> and Alistair. Hey, what's up? And we have indeed a very special guest. It's Matt Zarp cousin here on this very podcast. Hi, Matt. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Very good to be here. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Come. Thank you for coming. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an action-packed episode, as, as usual. So uh, first, I thought we should go through some smaller bits, some news nuggety things. And the first story I wanted to talk about, which is a bit of a follow-up on the story we did before in episode 69, about non-functioning tokens, if everybody remembers what they are. <laughs> Non-functioning mm-hmm. tokens. Hold on, yeah. it, it's as good as their real name. Let's just run with it. Yeah, yeah. The non-fungible tokens. <laughs> well, <done. laughs> or, or 
Bitcoin just even more of a scam. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It's essentially when you wrap a JPEG around a Bitcoin and then you pretend that that JPEG is a unique work of art. Um, and then you invest in it and people make stupid amounts of money because this is the kind of world we live in. I mean, the important question, the important question when it comes to, uh, to these tokens, I suppose, is can you exchange them for drugs? Probably yes. Oh well, okay. That's 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 my question out of the way. <laughs> and if you're in the art world, then it's expected. Matt, are you uh, are you familiar with the wonderful world of NFTs? Uh, I have uh, come across this in the news. I, I I find the whole thing about the concept of store of value quite fascinating, and obviously, you know, lots of things dictate value. But what I thought was an interesting parallel was, I mean, if you, you can sort of um compare it to well what about if if you had like say a painting that was very expensive and it was an original painting people still recognize that as an original and they're willing to pay money pay big money for that compared to say for example a print and this concept of an original artwork or an original some whatever it is store of value being kind of on a device and being able to encrypt that in some way or signify that in some way there might be something there i mean i don't know it's uh i know that there was a uh jack dorsey tweet that was sold for a ridiculous amount of money but no it's that's still being bid on i'm not sure that that's sold yet but it's just i i i i find really like it's it is it sounds ludicrous but then again so is paying big money for art as we conceptually know it so I think it just really, if anything, it, it highlights how ludicrous that is as well. Because yeah, I think there are legitimate parallels. I mean, this is not to say that like there's no there's no such thing as as everything moves more and more online. This should be a way to say I this is an original art piece and and I'm the creator and all of that. But to wrap it in the the thing of blockchain has essentially pulled in not the people who appreciate art, but the weirdos who appreciate Bitcoin. <laughs> two, two completely normal spheres of hu- of the human experience, the Bitcoin people and the fucking art people, <laughs> together at last. Well, I mean, if, if there, maybe you could store both in a free port and then they both exist in the quantum realm. Um, <laughs> the fucking shadow realm. No, that somehow this got coming out of um, Burning Man. That is the parallel between art weirdos and cyber weirdos. The reason I wanted to talk about it is that there's an auction just finished of the biggest headline piece uh, by an artist called Beeple, and we talked about him before, again, episode 69. <laughs> it sounds like a fucking social media website. Mm. Yeah, and, and the, the piece mm. he sold was a collage of all his previous bits of art stuck together, so it, it just looks like a patchwork, essentially. Back when I talked about it in a couple of weeks ago, the value was estimated that the bids were up to about 10 million US dollar. Well, the auction's now finished and it, the winning award was 70 million US dollar. Money's so fucking fake, honestly. <laughs> Mind you, it was bought with a lot of other fake currency, which was Ethereum, so it's yes. fine. Oh, was, the, was the winning payment done with Ethereum? I well, I'd say the majority of it was like 60-odd million of it was paid in Ethereum. So it's like, you know, it's a, so it wasn't really 60 million at all. It was basically nothing. 
yeah hopes and dreams yeah <laughs> well i mean all the nft so it's basically just link swapping yeah mm. i mean all the all the thing like of these nfts all the prices are rocketing because they're all bitcoin assets and they're very hip <laughs> <laughs> i do i do like how like these the intrinsic value of a bitcoin is essentially you know nothing it's just you know, it's almost almost arbitrary. It's the exchange value, and that's it. It's not a you physical know, I, object. I think <laughs> I've just realised that uh, you know, Bitcoin is basically only kind of the value it is because of what all the people are thinking about and the hope that it is going to be lo- getting larger all the time. So basically, Bitcoin is now officially the only thing that is affected by thoughts and prayers. <laughs> it, <it's, laughs> it, 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 it is. It is a. a I think a, a, obviously it's a bubble, and the thing that I. I have never really struggled to reckon, uh, the thing I've never been able to reconcile, sorry, about Bitcoin is how on earth are you going to transition from, okay, I get, I get the concept of blockchain and cryptocurrency and how that might, in theory, in future have some uses, but Bitcoin is just really outdated. It's really expensive. It's completely inadequate if you're trying to use it in a day to day setting. So where is the, it's a store of value because people have decided it's a store of value. It's, there's no practical use for it whatsoever. So that's always the thing I've struggled. Um, it's exactly that thoughts and prayers thing. So is the general consensus on this podcast then that that will come crashing down at some point? Uh, you know that it is a bubble. And as as I mean, we've we've come essentially. Alistair gave our conclusion, which is that all money is bullshit, and in the current world of zero interest rates and you know free money for everybody who wants it as long as they're already rich uh, this thing is going to be a thing uh, but because it's made of hopes and dreams and and the, the tweets of elon musk <laughs> yeah so mon- money is already fake and this is double plus fake and yeah so long yeah, as like the actual money that you know like pounds and dollars and stuff tends to be at some point like you know the the government it's either going to back it or want to take it from somebody or accept it and the only like equivalent for that for bitcoin and stuff is like criminals anyone else can do without it so it's like yeah. that's that's your guarantor for this product. i mean i mean i I, jo- I joked at the start about whether you can exchange these for drugs but honest to god the only thing i've ever known anyone exchange bitcoin for is drugs yeah and 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 that that isn't that isn't a joke at all so but now you can buy jpegs alistair <laughs> now you can buy jpegs <laughs> yeah <I'm... laughs> one thing that i really just don't get though about this whole nft deal obviously bitcoin yet yeah, it's a store of value can be used in transactions or what have you even that um you know that one we were just talking about by people you know at least that's his artwork you know you have that you can do stuff with it but where they're selling off jack's first tweet you then you can't do anything with it you can't delete it you can't put it anywhere else no you can't put it on display in the louvre yeah. well, I mean, no no, so no you can't what are you paying two and a half million dollars for so you can look at it just the same as everyone else can look at it I think you're paying for the expectation that somebody else will pay you more for it in the future. Mm. I think that's literally the only reason you're buying it. Um, but there was one other thing which drove me even more wild and insane this week about these NFTs is that some group or some person who owned an actual existing uh, Banksy canvas, the Banksy canvas being appropriately known as Morons, which was a critique of the art market in and of itself, and the guy who owned it, or, or somebody, they were wearing a balaclava, they set the existing actual art piece on fire during a live stream. 
and then afterwards sold an NFT of this previously existing real artwork for 275,000 quid. Hmm. What the fuck? <laughs> what? Just <laughs> how... How do how do we live in a world where the ashes of the picture of the ashes essentially of a thing that used to exist is now worth millions upon millions? I just it's since since COVID has hit, the world has become probably I wouldn't say insane in a different way, but just insane in an extremely rapid sense of where it was already headed. But how? How have we gotten here so fucking quickly? Where, pay, what, $2.5 million for a tweet? I mean, yeah. come on. It's not even a good one. Like, it's not even like a good drill or, or you know. Like <laughs> <laughs> the only thing, I mean, uh, Matt, you were saying, like, how is this a store of value? And the only reason that I can think that makes it a store of value, but like an extremely, like, gross and cynical way is that the the energy needed to produce individual Bitcoin grows with every Bitcoin produced because the, the blockchain gets longer, the, the, the equation becomes more complicated. So currently, it's, a, it's difficult to fully estimate, but Bitcoin mining on Bitcoin servers is already burning more uh, kilowatts than the entire nation of Argentina, which makes it a top 30 energy user if it was a country. Yeah. I just want to. I just want to. I just want to add on to the um, Bitcoin is completely bonkers. Like the idea that it would ever replace like fiat currency, uh, scare quotes around that, is absolutely just not going to happen. I mean, aside from the fact that it takes the power of a nuclear reactor to power uh, the damn three, thing, three, three or four actually, <laughs> three or four nuclear reactors. It, 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 there is something on the order of what two dozen transactions that can be conducted per second. I think that might be an overestimate. Eight, yeah. eight? eight. <laughs> okay, eight, <laughs> yeah. eight transactions I, per I second. I actually worked this one out. Now, the number of transactions that Bitcoin can do over the course of one entire year is the exact same number as credit card transactions in the USA in eight hours. I mean, that's that. Yeah, and the, the, the point about. Um, uh, the energy that's used as well. I, I, I tweeted something about this and I had loads of Bitcoin fans in my mentions. Um, and that, and <laughs> Did they, they all have like Elon Musk avatars or something? <laughs> they all had rockets and all that stuff. Yeah, so they, oh, yeah. Uh, and, and the argument that they were, they were putting forward, I think, you know, quite a lot of them were saying, actually, this is good for the environment because what it will mean is we we transition more rapidly <laughs> to renewable energy. <laughs> See, That's it's like actually... saying that um, that the fact that they're buying up all the spare video cards um, and making it unaffordable for gamers is good because now the gamers will have to go outside and do real things for entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, see, it's good that I'm digging up all this oil out of the ground so that nobody else can use it. <laughs> <laughs> and they were saying that all of these these warehouses that are kind of Bitcoin mining warehouses or whatever, is that they've all got solar panels on the roof, so they're all incentivized to kind of you know generate their own electricity. Um, it just set, sounds completely delusional. And whenever yeah. you whenever you take this to its logical conclusion, whenever you interrogate it even mildly, you realise this has no use whatsoever, and it is just a massive bubble. But I think that that's just representative of so many things since well, I think what lockdowns accelerated. I mean, 
I mean, the bubble. The bubble is the point, as as it is with like the housing market or any other bubble you could care to think of. Yeah. There are always going to be winners and losers, and the idea of being a Bitcoin guy is that you're going to be one of the winners. You're not going to be one of the poor people who ends up, you know, remortgaging their house to put it all into Bitcoin and then left holding the bag when it drops from, you know, $32,000 or whatever the fuck it is at the moment. And then 10 minutes later, it's down to like 10,000 and you've lost, you've just wiped out like 200, $300,000, $400,000 pounds, whatever you choose. And yeah. And then some, some guy ends up making like millions and millions off of the back, essentially, you know, I mean, as ever the backs of a bunch of other Mm. people. Um, and yeah, this is a desirable thing to have, and a and the basis upon which we should have all of our finances. I mean, I can see why some people would think that, but I personally am not particularly persuaded. No. no. Yeah. When uh, I was on, not last time, but when I was talking about GameStop uh, last time, I wish I'd pointed that out more. Um, I remember saying, "For God's sake, don't buy now." But I probably uh, should have spoken more about what exactly you know who's going to walk away, who's going to be left holding the bag, um, mm. because. Yeah, I imagine there's quite a lot of people that did. When I was doing the show notes for the GameStop thing, I was like, that's when I should have bought because obviously when the millions of listeners we have of this podcast <laughs> all rush out to buy it, then I'm golden. Well, I got shouted down when I tried to uh, say, well, we're just going to have to do our stock tips at the end of each episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come to come to podcasting's practice for hot stock tips and what to buy and what to sell. <laughs> Well, I mean, speaking of things that are for for buy and sale, uh, Matt, I know you've been talking about it certainly this weekend before, but the the football index saga, which I honestly didn't know anything about until I did some some reading today, and I I thought I'd just kind of let you talk about what it is and why people are getting screwed. But the more I read about it, the more like my head started to hurt, essentially. Yeah, I think it's... uh... It really does exist at this intersection between investing and gambling. And it is licensed, it was licensed as a gambling product, so it's licensed suspended now. And the context here, I think, is there's been, as in recent years, more and more of an overlap between gaming, loot boxes and video games and whatever, gambling and investing, quote unquote. What Football Index was, was a stock market for footballers. They weren't actually selling shares or trading shares in real footballers. You didn't buy an actual share of, you know, Virgil van Dijk or whatever. And they were assets that they'd created to represent footballers. And this sounds, they, sort of sounds that, that the other concept would be much cooler if it was like sort of a medieval saint thing that I could like buy the pinky of Dens Bergkamp or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, it, it, that might have been a more sustainable business model um, <laughs> because, because what actually ended up happening and, you know, like it, what, it's, fractions of the, the Holy Crossbar or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> They um, so they they minted the shares in the footballers, and what they would what they said was, for every goal, assist, clean sheets, and like positive media coverage that this footballer gets, that you buy a share in, will pay dividends. The dividends were sort of what was driving the value in those shares. So you would buy a share in a player, whatever, Jaden Sancho. Um, you know, you people would want that share because they would get the dividends that that player was was sort of bringing in because they were performing well. And then what happened was 
<laughs> and this happened this happened in the last couple of weeks. Sorry, could I also trade my shares in, I don't know, Wayne Rooney to Alistair, or can I only wait for the dividends to roll in? Well, if you, if you buy shares in, in a player, uh, you can uh, you can wait for your dividends to roll in, and then you can you, you can sell it at any time at the market rate. So people were buying and selling shares all the time in players, and it was effectively a marketplace, and the value of the shares was determined by kind of market forces within the stock market that football index had created to trade footballers, but not real footballers, footballers that sort of assets had created. What they did, what they, what they ended up happening in the last couple of weeks, is they ran out of money and for multiple reasons. I think primarily because they tried to expand too quickly and effectively they to cut the dividends because they weren't getting the new deposits and the new customers into the platform that they had sort of planned for. And when they cut the dividends that they're paying out because they're worried they're going to run out of money, the market crashed. People said there's no value in these things anymore. So hmm. people who had, some people had six figure sums invested in these assets. Jeez. And the, the chief executive, uh, the former chief executive, um, well, actually, and, and the existing one, both, both saying things like, reassuring investors, saying they were going to do deals with NASDAQ about, you know, using their technology. Um, saying that the company was in, you know, sound financial footing, encouraging people to invest more all the time. And people did, and they put huge amounts of money in. And obviously now it's absolutely devastated tens of thousands of people. It's, it's pretty grim. It's a pretty grim story. And, and the, the gambling commission, which is supposed to oversee this particular company or all gambling licensees, but. <clears throat> clearly didn't really understand the business model because effectively what it became, particularly towards the end, was sort of more akin to a Ponzi scheme. They were desperate to yeah, get new, new money in. Mm. And, and, and you know, for whatever reason, they, they had burned through their cash reserves because there's no way really that they should have been in that position. I mean, it may never have worked. It may never have been a viable business model. There's some debate about that. But the way they ran it... And the way they tried to expand and they just burned through their cash and they were desperate to get new, new customers in. And then eventually the, there was a, a massive correction in the market, but that was caused by mm. them cutting the dividends. By, by, the, by essentially the market regulator itself. And I mean, like mm. we're not talking like small peanuts here. Like this thing, I think during the 2018-19 season, so pre-COVID, it it the the turnover was more than three hundred million pound in 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 like annual trade, and they paid f something like four four and a half million in uh, quid out to to the actual traders. So like this was not an insubstantial lightweight. What I really don't understand is, I mean, especially given our, the previous thing we were talking about, is why was this under the gambling commission and not like the financial conduct authority? Because what it sounds like to me is that you're building a stock market just on football assets rather than companies. It almost sounds like what they were going for is instead of um, it being shares, they were trying to almost do spread betting. You know, you're buying in at this point and then hoping that the value goes up, which you can you can sell later. So that's almost what it feels like. I feel, I feel like what would have been a more sound investment, given Matt's explanation just there, would have been uh, first edition Pokemon cards off of eBay. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen how much some of those suckers are going for? And at least you get, <laughs> at least you get a shiny bit of foil out of it. We, if we put those on the blockchain as well, the Pokemon cards, we burn the Pokemon card. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, this one's fire resistant though. <laughs>
Oh dear. Spread betting is uh, is regulated by the FCA, and the, what you've asked there is absolutely correct. Like the business model effectively was like almost a narrow bank, so people were putting money in that they could cash out immediately, and the business liabilities were all long dated. So should they have had you know things like capital ratios and liquidity supervision and all that stuff? Because effectively they were running the stock market. Yeah. Even though they've created Just the build assets your own stock market, easy. What, what, when I was reading about this, that's what drove me insane. I'm just like, you invented a stock market. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 find, I find it all astonishing that the Gambling Commission just um, really is, it's not fit for purpose and there's no ombudsman. So there's no, there's no mechanism for any of these consumers to get redress for the way that this has you know, unfolded. And that's why I'm working with Lee Day, the law firm to hopefully you know, investigate possible causes of action and then we can take it forward. But I mean, as of yesterday, I had about 5,000 people sign up to the, mm. to, to, to get updates on the case. So it's massive. And the sums that we're talking about are huge. It's about 90 million was sucked out of the market and like the crash cost about 90 million in value, which is astonishing. Yeah. Well, yeah, this is it. Like, well, since it's, it's particularly sort of an unregulated unre- type thing, that as soon as there's a panic, then it or huge amounts of um, everything can or value and you know currency can just evaporate because people that aren't willing to buy anywhere near the cost that they just sold at. I mean, technically, that's money transferred at some point, but it will all just go and people will lose huge amounts of their holdings. It's weird though that because like you know once you've got enough money to sort of be influential in the real stock market it can be very hard to lose money because you get access to you know so much um yeah well insider trading and protection and yeah you get plugged into the matrix and and then they stream the data straight into your into the back of your head (laughs) (laughs) yeah or uh they buy the server farm a microsecond closer to the stock exchange so they can outbid the competition (laughs) oh Um, fuck fucking love the lengths that like finance people go to because it's just yeah, ludicrous all like, the stuff that you the uh, optimizations cheap. that's yeah like the the optimizations you can make to the system in order that you get your trades in either with better information or just plain faster yeah so yeah <laughs> but yeah no if you're just preying on the individual um you know with uh you know a glitzy futuristic sport thing or Pokemon yeah. cards or whatever, then well, yeah, I mean, and, and, like... and you're disguising essentially what is gambling in a non-regulated stock market through football. So you know, the, like the, the the people you would get, maybe Matt, maybe I'm wrong, but like the, the profile of the people you would attract with this are would be even broader than it, just with I don't know regular slot machines or online poker. Or something. Oh yeah, I mean, I, there's there's lots of people that I've spoken to just since the weekend who didn't gamble on anything else and they didn't even see this as gambling so you can imagine like the the devastation that, that, that they're sort of currently going through because they've never experienced like losses like this and and they were making what they thought were long-term bets so for an example there's a player called Cherky he plays for Leon I think and they minted a load of shares in him and he's only 17 and he's been like injured most of the season so loads of people bought shares in this player and he's not, not paid out any dividends on him. So these were sort of what they were considering. So all of that money's gone, obviously. Um, so that there's no, really, I think that there's money that's somewhere that needs to be found, that the company is not, you know, 
been moving money around that I think that, that that's going to obviously be the subject of the investigation because there's no way that it, it, it could have burned through those cash reserves so quickly without moving money around. That's, that's what Look, this is Matt, mm. I'm, I'm sure that these are fine, upstanding people that are running <laughs> this operation and they've... <laughs> a, with a thorough police investigation, I'm sure it will all be sorted out. <laughs> no, I was, I was just going to say, so effectively the way it worked was um, these were three-year bets. So you would buy the shares and then if it, as the bets were supposed to expire after three years. But then apparently they just didn't expire. They just lapsed after the three years. So that may be a theory as to why they ran out of money that they ran they couldn't afford the dividend payments because they just sort of let people maintain their assets um created obviously so there's a lot of confusion really about about what exactly has gone on but what we do know is mm. the complex company structure so bet index which was licensed by the gambling commission that's based in jersey probably for reasons of avoidance of corporation tax yeah i was going to say um, based in mm -hmm. jersey always gives me like warm and fuzzy feelings <laughs> And then you've got Index Labs, which is the parent company, and that's registered in the UK. Um, and then if you look on their like LinkedIn page, you can see that um, they actually say Football Index is our creation, what we created. So you know, that's probably where the money is, I would have thought. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just it just really does shine a light on how easy I think it is to get licensed by the Gambling Commission, because... Why wouldn't the Gambling Commission say, for example, we're not going to license Bet Index because it's in Jersey. We're going to instead say that you've got to transfer all of the IP, keep it in Index Labs, and then you'll have to pay UK corporation tax. But they don't do that. I mean, that's just a very simple thing that they could do. Yeah. Um, and it's just it just seems like the whole system is almost geared up to enable people to take the piss. Hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's sort of smoothly bridging from, from one taking the piss um, section into another. What is out now is the UK Integrated Review, which is um, sort of a document that spells out the Britain's security, defense, development and foreign policy quadrant or whatever you want to call it in uh, for the UK. And this is essentially this says where they believe Britain should be going um, in, in the next years. It's like a 100-page document, and I lightly skimmed through it, so I don't want to talk about all the details. I just want to pick out mm. a few bits that I found extremely I think I think my favourite I think my favorite thing that I've seen from all this is that we're going to nuke all the hackers. Mm -hmm. Like, we're, is, <laughs> we're going to... Yeah, so rather than, rather than um, aiming our nuclear weapon... Like, well, what is it? 40% increased yeah. nuclear weapon reserve at... Um, other like nation states with uh, that also have a nuclear arsenal. No, we're going to aim it at any kid with a laptop that downloads an illegal copy <laughs> of <laughs> Weekend at Bernie's or some shit. No <laughs> war games, please come on. The new generation of those ads of you know you wouldn't download a you wouldn't steal a car you wouldn't download a movie but then this time like, <laughs> you wouldn't start a thermonuclear war with a child in a living room. <laughs> <laughs> no, but one of the weird equivalents that's being drawn is, which is why one of the reasons they said they want more nukes is because they say that cyber is now at the same level as um, nuclear, chemical and biological weapons. Now, I think there's some argument to be had there, but there's some other shit in there that I found extremely funny. My favorite bit of this is by summer of this year, 
um, the UK is going to establish its own space command to advance the UK's <laughs> military interest on Earth and in space. Oh, my fucking God. He really is Trump, isn't he, with blonde hair? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, are we, are we going to put the orange makeup on? I Hang assume... on, isn't it, isn't it illegal to militarize space anyway? I know, yeah. like, the USA doesn't care about that. How are we going to get away with that? Well, you see, now that we're out of the EU, we can launch our own satellites <laughs> yeah. that contain the increased nuclear arsenal. We're going to fight. We're going to launch the submarines into space, and thereby saving ourselves money in having to develop um, a nuclear-armed gunship. I mean, well, it's just makes sense. It's fine. Well, you you say this, but one of the things that is inside these plans is also that they want to create a space launch pad is somewhere in Scotland, I think. So we are gonna. You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where? Somewhere in Scotland. You know that country's that that's not leaving. Sc- Scotland, yes. the place famous for its relaxed and calm weather. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it'll be fine. It'll be great. Always the lovely clear sky is just the thing for you know a launch. Uh, yeah, I mean, what I'm, well, the other one of the other bits that I find less funny and more terrifying is that I, I can't remember the page number, but it is buried in there. Is that they say that. They will bring in voter identification as part of the UK's security effort to ensure that, like, you know, Russia doesn't hack our election again. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you just have to laugh at this point. I mean, <laughs> we could, we could, the, the, the window wherein we could have done something about this has essentially passed. So, I mean, I, rather than feeling helpless, I just, I just laugh at, um, People yes. who were, you know, saying that this definitely couldn't have happened, and then, oh, wouldn't wouldn't you look now? Look what's happened, <laughs> Kel surprise. Well, okay, they did this, but surely the next thing won't happen. Surely, surely not. No, I mean, I feel I, I felt a bit difficult bringing in this up. I mean, knowing that Matt worked for years for noted um, Czech intelligence agent uh, Jeremy Corbyn, KGB, <laughs> but. <you know. laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's all astonishing, all of this stuff. I mean, I I I, I don't think that there's anything to be gained really from from saying to everyone that we told you so. But what I can't really abide is the blue tick liberals all now, you know, having a meltdown because of what's unfolding, even though it was entirely predictable, and they actively sabotaged and were desperate for you know to stop Corbyn and that was like their priority it was it it was pathological and you know to the point where you know even even the most rabid kind of uh stop Brexiteers were prioritizing you know stopping Corbyn over over Remain you know that was their kind of hierarchy of priorities Mm. so yeah I mean I I find it completely such and now and now like all of the things that that he said, not just on defence, but like all of the things that he said, are coming to fruition. Really, so yeah, the four the four day week I think is going to become a reality much quicker than you know anyone could have predicted. Really, before the pandemic, the free broadband thing, which was mocked, you know, he was sort of ahead of the game on that. The fact that austerity was a load of bollocks, um, everyone sort of accepted that mm-hmm. now, and. Uh, you know, governments can spend money; uh, they can create money and spend money, and, and that's not really contentious anymore. I think, I think Angela Rayner actually put it quite well herself because uh, it might be true, but you can't say that. 
and it's just it, it is incredible to me that um I mean I'm not I'm not surprised at all. It it was inexorable the the way that the people who if they were actually going to try and achieve the kind of world that they purport to to want, which is one where you know we don't we don't live in an authoritarian um, right wing hellhole, those people were always going to oppose uh, someone who is going to cause them any sort of pain in the sense of whether it be through taxation or otherwise. But um, the world that they these people want to live in is one where they can give a sort of piecemeal resistance to a rightwards ratchet, uh, you know, that just goes on indefinitely as, the, you know, as the Overton window inevitably, inevitably shifts to the right. Uh, that is the world that they want to live in. They don't want to ever actually have to fight for anything. I mean, the one thing they did supposedly want to fight for was to stay in the EU, and uh, they were thwarted by themselves. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of. That's, I mean, all, all this kind of leads us very naturally into uh, one of the many reasons why we wanted to bring Matt on this evening, which is to discuss. <laughs> I put it in, in the show notes as the state of the Labour Party, but I can't remember who. But somebody changed it to the absolute state of the Labour Party. Which <laughs> I think is a, is a, <laughs> way more accurate. It's a much better joke. Um, so we're coming up very close now to. It was on April fourth, so about two weeks from now, that Keir Starmer was elected leader of the Labour Party, and. I think post Jeremy Corbyn, there was certainly after the loss of the 2019 election, there was like this moment of sort of total deer in the headlights panic. You know, what happened? What's gone wrong? Mm. All that stuff. I don't want, to, I really don't want to spend this podcast relitigating that because that's just, to me, that's in the past now. And if there's any lessons to learn, then, then maybe we talk about it. You know, th there was that moment in the beginning with the 10 pledges of Starmer and, and, you know, to say, look, I'm, I will continue his radical work, but I'll just wear a nice suit and, and have a haircut and not nationalize sausages or whatever. And in between that moment and now, I mean, the whole thing has just, I'm astonished by how quickly it, the whole thing is just, I mean, it, the wheels, it, or maybe it's just me, maybe I'm wrong, maybe, but the no, wheels no, no, no. do really seem to be coming off the wagon. You're, you're right, and that's their own that that's I think they're obviously their own their own fault and the direction they've gone. I just want I don't want to relitigate the past too much, but I do I would like to talk just very briefly about about January twenty twenty and the fact that, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't have any any campaign ready to go. We didn't have any campaign planned. You know, mm -hmm. compared to the other side who had literally years of, you know, planning and focus groups and um, you know, Labour together, money, which is an and, interesting question. Uh, yeah, so and, and Matt, your side being that of Rebecca Long Bailey, just to make yeah, that yeah, well, just the left, really. I mean, Rebecca. Yeah, was, I mean, yeah, Re 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 yeah. Rebecca was, you know, she stepped up and deserves a lot of credit for doing so uh, in a difficult context. And you know, as you say, everyone was very shell shocked. But like, we had to piece a campaign together, and we we wanted to protect the gains that that Jeremy had had made in policy, which a lot, I think a lot of the membership have become very desensitized to, you know, how far we had shifted. And as a result of that, moved the Overton window and shifted the terms of debate in the country. And, you know, we wanted to protect that. So we wanted to make this about policy and not retreating. And then <laughs> we would sort of succeed. Initially, we were succeeding in, I think, 
you know, making it about policy and getting the camp, you know, getting commitments out of the other candidates and trying to smoke them out to as much as possible about where they actually stood. Keir was a very, very slippery mm. and very, mm. very, uh, the way that he presented himself was ambiguous in, enough that people could project onto him what they wanted. But yeah, then that's a then, Obama like quality, never stating a position, but giving just the right words and dropping the right hint here and there, like some sort of weird confetti thing. It's, it, it, it has that Obama vibe to me where, where people just imprinted on him what they wanted for themselves. Exactly. A very weird characteristic I thought of the whole competition was the, the presence of pledges. You know, obviously, like we should incessantly mock and attack Starmer for making these pledges at the time and now broken like all of them. Um, but then also there's just like, random organizations and groupings demanding all of the candidates sign up for this pledge and that pledge and stuff like that. It was, it was an odd kind of, uh, you know, like most of the pledges were either quite, you know, boring or just kind of often veiled attack lines as well. It was a very odd kind of campaign environment because yeah, suddenly it wasn't about candidates able to take the control of it. Yeah, I do want to say though that the concrete pledges, as, as you as you rightly say, said like they are the most. I think the most concrete thing that we've had out of Keir Starmer in his entire in the entire time he well post uh, twenty nineteen really, apart from um, being a staunch Remainer prior to that. So uh, yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, to... so in, in the context of the, the, the leadership debate, I felt like that was a response to him being. In, in the, in terms of like what was being debated and, and, you know, where the, where the conversation was going around the leadership, I felt like that was a response to that context. So it may not have been planned initially that he would do the 10 pledges. I know, for example, that one of the people that's very close to Keir Starmer and very influential in his campaign and now in his operation, who is on the right of the party, uh, compared the 10 pledges to the Communist Manifesto. So you know. <laughs> so oh like, my god! Every Ooh. everyone's a fucking trot to these people, isn't it? I know. Oh yeah. my god! Uh, list a list, comrade, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but they, but even they send were, them to the gulags next. It, it, sorry, it, go on, Matt. <laughs> sorry, no, it, even even they were kind of you know written in a way that gave him a lot of wriggle room. And when when they did it, I was like, in a way, I was like, okay, good. We've kind of drawn him out enough that he's had to take some kind of position on this on different issues because he wasn't doing that until that point um and now we've got commitments to hold him to if we don't win but like you know there was there was so at the same time it was like okay now that's going to reassure people so yeah it's going to reassure people enough that if they were a bit wavery wavering slightly you know that that you know that that would give them a bit of comfort but obviously he just completely backtracked on all of them anyway well, yeah, like, to be honest, like Corbynism, but with good press, is one hell of a way of convincing Labour members to vote for you. But that's obviously not what they <laughs> have. No, and I mean, I remember at the time as well, this this whole story that was kicked around right before uh, Becky Leon Bailey signed up with like, oh, the next leader of Labour must be a woman. And it's really important that we show diversity. <laughs> and like, I'm not disagreeing that the next leader of the Labour Party should be a woman. But, you know, that all of a sudden that went completely out the window the moment, you know, the guy in the suit and the haircut showed up, which is, I thought that was a fascinating sort of little sideshow as well. 
I mean, as ever with these people, it's whatever was politically convenient to say or do. It was politically convenient to say when uh, the two, you know, the two main offices in as uh, the opposition, the uh, leader of the leader of the opposition and the shadow chancellor, when they were both men, it was very easy to say both of these people should be women. And uh, in the wake of, you know, Keir Starmer and the other. Um, you know, the, his opponents essentially all being women is that no, no, Keir Starmer is the one with the feminist credentials. <laughs> yeah. But I do also, I do, I do also just want to add that I do like how we've gone from these relatively concrete pledges of Keir Starmer to Paul Mason having to do essentially tea leave readings of what. <laughs> Keir Starmer's said and done to people on Twitter because um, yeah, otherwise you can't understand things from a Marxist perspective. Yeah, he's on like Keir Starmer jazz. It's like all about the politics you don't hear. That's like... <laughs> <laughs> but hang on, wasn't one of the original 10 pledges to agree with the Tories on everything ever? I mean, like, I, it, that's, I find that difficult because like, I, I do understand and have some sympathy for the fact that like, Rona blew in and and just changed everything. And I do get that, like, hmm. if if you're the Labour Party and you want to persuade people who are not the people on this podcast or the people who listen to this podcast, that there that a lot of people would find it really difficult had Labour like really gone into harsh opposition on everything from from day one. Hmm. Like, I have some sympathy for that position, but to just sort of pre-announce that you know we will support the government, it. I, this is one of these things that I just I, I, I find really baffling because of what it leaves you with, and we see that now, is that whatever's going to come out of this, whatever inquiry or nothing, and there was a stupid sideshow with Dominic Cummings today uh, in Parliament, and like Labour can't really put the boot in because they've agreed with all of it mm. while it was happening. So mm. all Tory, I, the Tories have to yeah. do is just say, yeah, but you agreed with us when it was happening. So, you know, like the Captain Hindsight thing, I remember that slogan from the Tories because it works. Yeah, I'd, you know, whatever whatever failings Jeremy Corbyn had as leader of the Labour Party, forever it was forever said throughout his leadership that he never actually opposed the Tories. But you have to be, you know, it is in your political interest to say that when uh, you know prior to 2019 because even even after 29 the 2019 election even even though Jeremy Corbyn was about to leave office the opposition leadership uh, the Labour Party leadership um le- election was underway he still caused the fucking Tories to implement um the uh what's it the scheme for people who uh, yeah, furlough the, scheme uh, sorry furlough scheme. Yeah, yeah. even even then he actually, you know, through uh, actually doing political manoeuvring, which is what you are supposed to do as the opposition. You are supposed to, you know, position yourself in such a way that you cause the incumbent government to either make a fool of themselves or to do the thing that you want them to do. But because Keir Starmer was, has joined politics about two minutes ago, mm. he's just either decided he doesn't want to do that kind of thing and to be this, you know, rubber-faced man that you can just project whatever you want onto, or he's just incapable of doing that kind of thing or instru- or taking instructions from people who would actually get him to do something like that. But, I think you know... I, th- I think it's the latter. I, th- I think he's he doesn't really have a worldview. He doesn't really have a vision uh, or any kind of, you know, mm-hmm. concrete beliefs. 
he just thinks he should be in charge. He's the sort of person that should be in charge because he's been in charge of organizations before and, you know, he'd be good at being in charge and taking decisions and all that stuff. That's his conception of politics, right? So it's not about like actually a transformative change. It's about getting into power and being a better manager than the other guy. And I think he's surrounded by people who reinforce that belief, but also people who, frankly, they're, they're, the conception of the British public is, is out of date. It's about 30 years out of date. Oh, the, 24, if you want to be precise. In, yeah. Well, <laughs> look, I mean, it, it, the, the centre of gravity of public opinion is is to the, is on the left. I mean, that's why the Tories are doing a lot of, or at least in terms of rhetoric, are emulating a lot of Labour policies. You know, the idea that we need to be more right-wing than the Tories to win, it just completely misunderstands the electorate completely misunderstands the areas of the country that we lost. And Labour, frankly, has been in terminal decline since 2010, or well, since 2005, in fact. Well, 2001, arguably. <laughs> well, in, 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 yeah, absolutely. It's obviously accelerated a lot since 2010, except one election, 2017, yeah. we bumped the trend. <laughs> and if, if, you, if, you, if you look at it from that perspective, then... The fact that they're ignoring that election and they're ignoring what we what happened there and what Jeremy Corbyn did and how he did it and you know the lessons, the positive lessons that we learned. The one time that we bucked the trend and all of these people on the right of the party were trying to fuck us over <laughs> from the inside. Mm, mm. And they don't want to learn those lessons. They want to pretend that that election never happened, which I think is... No, because then they would have to crazy. admit that something good and, and positive came out of something, a, a period that they consider to be wholly garbage and, 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 mm. and the need for rejecting. And, and Matt, this is a question I had. There's something that's sort of been rummaging around in my head, which I really can't work out, because I know there's like a lot of jokes and stuff of... of this Keith party now being run by focus groups. And I think it, mm -hmm. a lot of it is, but what I can't work out is even under Tony Blair um, in the last election as well, if you remember, we had, um, what was it? Workington man was there. Like, you know, the, 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 mm -hmm. there are always these sort of composites that, that need to Mondeo be chased. It, under Blair. Yes, yeah. Mondeo yeah, yeah. Man, Mondeo man uh, work, yeah. that. And what I was trying to work out in my head is like, who the composite character is that like this Keir Starmer Labour Party is trying to, to like convince because like I hate the term Labour with Red Wall with with every fiber of my being. But is it well, you know, like, it, are it's, they it, it, it's the it's gammon, isn't it? Like that's yeah. it. It's everything is orientated mm. towards winning over the gammon. Mm. Unfortunately, the gammon are never going to vote for Labour. They're never going to. They are economically and culturally predisposed now to be voting Tory every election until they die. And the problem yeah. with trying to appeal to the gammon and having your entire operation as, as sort of gammon focused is you end up alienating your new base, which is young people. And that's what's happening now. Young people are going to the Greens or they're becoming disillusioned. And, and unfortunately, there is a demographic issue here that can only really be resolved in the short term by expanding the electorate. It's not going to work to do what we did in 97 by trying to appeal to Tory voters. We're not talking about young aspirational Tory voters now. We're talking about old asset owners who are probably landlords and who are retired and not even involved in the labour market and are reactionary. And that's who Starmer's trying to appeal to. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's, I find that really difficult because like to me, like, 
as you say, it seems so like blindingly obvious, at least to me, that like the the, the gammon vote and and the women gams. Let's let's not be you know mm. sexist. Um, <laughs> lady, gammon is gender lady, lady gams. gams. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I think I'm not sure Gammon is, is, is gender neutral anymore, but I want to be, you know, we are an inclusive podcast. And, and what I find really interesting is that sort of mixed in there is this is and what I think the, the again, the Keir Starmer Labour Party seems to sort of really want to ignore is that Remain and, and, and Leave have formed distinct cultural identities and they still think that, OK, we're not going to like we agree it's Leave now, but like, you know, the the the. the the, the the identity at least as I see it as as leave has coalesced around the Tory and doesn't seem to want to budge from that position at any time soon you know like again it's that gammon vote and mm. I find it you know they, they seem to sort of much like the, the the Corbyn years they seem to sort of want to brush remain and leave under the carpet I mean I think electorally though like it if if you're gonna go with that mindset then you're never going to win an election again, sort of, even if they're, you know, because obviously Leave did have huge demographic, um, you know, tendencies towards the, you know, the gammon and just the people who will never vote for, you know, Corbynite type policies anyway. But I don't know if that's a particularly useful framing going forward, particularly because, you know, it has happened and stuff yeah, yeah. like that. So no, but, it is a part breaking apart that sense of that coalition. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I don't agree with that. I just, I wonder it, 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 how you would do that and certainly how this Labour Party as it currently exists will seek to do that. Like that's that's my biggest trouble with it. I can't see it happening. I really just can't. I mean, there's just so many people or so many, as I say, young, young people now disillusioned with the Labour Party and they just don't know where to go. They are, they have no political home anymore. When it comes to the next election, they're not going to vote Labour and they're not going to vote Tory. And but all the Tory people are still going to vote Tory, so I think it's going to be an absolute bloodbath for Labour. Yeah, Matt, mm. Matt do, do you have any views on what you think is going to happen in uh, in May? I think uh, we should treat 2017 as an anomaly, and then we should look at the trajectory of the last few elections, excluding 2017, and that's where Labour will head. Mm. And I think in May it's going to be a disaster. I think uh, we might even lose councillors, you know, that, in, which is, you know, given the last time we had these this, this local elections was 2017, which was just as I think the... The high point. The, I think, well, I think the election was called actually in... So the general election was called and then we had the local elections about a week later. So we, oh, we, hadn't, yeah, yeah. we hadn't really made up the ground then. Um, so it wasn't a great night for Labour. We'd held on to, you know, fair few seats or whatever, a fair few councils, but it wasn't like a, a you know, a landslide victory or anything for us. Um, but I think we still even might lose councillors from this, from this point. And now there's like really create, there's a, a lot of political space that's been created. Who knows what could happen with, for example, the Northern Independence Party, or who knows what could happen with the Greens if more left-wing people join the Greens and they start to take less centrist liberal positions on things. I mean, there's lots of opportunities now that really we haven't, Labour hasn't had to worry about in the last five years, but they are mm. now suddenly an issue. Yeah, see, I'm at, I'm at a point as I'm, you know, I was, a, I was a member of the Labour Party pretty much from 2015 until mid 2020. At this point, I am pretty much, my mind is in the place where I'm, I would 
sooner vote green to annoy someone in like some guy in labor hq right up until the point that they might like say win a seat or win a councillor or something that's pretty much my my consideration there is i would get more of my political aims met by voting for the greens to annoy a, one guy in labor hq than i would for voting for the labor party in its current state mm. and i don't know how universal that feeling is but I, it's i think not it, yeah. you know <laughs> i think more common than you might think i agree i, yeah, I, I, I think mean, in, uh, in, in taking... the past that no, no. Well, I was ju- I was just I was just going to say quickly that yeah, you know, like just need to look at the the people that were the really solid activist base in momentum, um, and you know, sort of their uh, they you know won the uh, the campaigning or canvassing uh, strike in Bristol because they don't want to go out for candidates that aren't willing to stand up for the membership against the various things, you know that. Uh, the the labor regional um officers and stuff have been doing and yeah so like those are the that's a, it's such a swing in terms of enthusiasm and you know just belief mm. in candidates just because they're labor and that's you know the i mean the really dedicated have, momentum lot remember that you know even in 2017 there was a lot of voting for candidates or voting voting labor in spite of the candidates right mm. uh i mean um oh, what's her face the um was it canterbury i can't remember which mp oh, that is, rosie duffield, is that yeah. Duffield? yeah rosie duffield in particular um can if i if i was someone who voted ended up voting for rosie duffield and i had the choice to vote for her again um whew, yeah, boy up. would that be mm-hmm. uh that would be quite a large pair of fingers on my nose i think but um i i do i do have a question for you actually matt um the right of the labor party sees electoral success behind driving every anyone from the party that is to the left of gordon brown say that say that they are correct in and that is the way to electoral success what happens when they drive all these people out the act you know and all the activists that are incumbent with that that side of the of the party are gone. What ha- what happens? What 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 is the end game there? Yeah, exactly. What happens? Uh, that the um, so the answer to this question is why I'm staying in the Labour Party despite everything, um, and that is that they will replace the sources of funding and support with corporate vested interests. Um, yeah, they Which will, we've seen already quite a lot. <laughs> They will emulate the Tories in their organisational structure. Um, they will. Oh no! Does that does that mean we're going to get a bunch of paid, like cursed Instagram ads with <laughs> like fucking Luke <laughs> Akers no, 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 bow tie wearing dipshits in it? Uh, no, nothing, nothing that nothing that competent um, because they're still be staffed <laughs> by by complete idiots. Um, yeah, no, Starmer's Labour is going onto TikTok now. So <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you're going to get the the cabinet uh, or shadow cabinet just like flossing on TikTok, oh and duetting God. each other. <laughs> but we we have we have oh. obviously because of first past the post, we have a, a two party system fundamentally, and and what they want to do is is shut out you know, democratic accountability and grassroots activism from that process and from that system, and their their labour rights see themselves as almost the gatekeepers to our to keeping you know the 
um, the left out of trying to influence or infiltrate the establishment. That, that's how their mindset, their loyalty is to kind of the establishment. And that's the real division, I think. it's um, It really did, I think it was magnified when I was working for Jeremy because they, not only did they see us as illegitimate and, the, and his leadership as illegitimate, but they uh, they saw the entire left as, as illegitimate and that they, they almost had rationalized themselves that they could do whatever they wanted and they could do anything anything possible to fuck us over and that was the number one priority uh in everything they did and it was mm. um yeah overwhelming at times and completely inexplicable but that's that was their mindset they were trying to protect the establishment from the left and the left is a kind of proxy for, for you know, Petrotsky. ordinary people who were who were getting in, who were getting involved <laughs> in politics. <laughs> it's re- it was really instructive to me, at least, just how monumental when, like, I mean, when Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader, like, I was shocked, you know, that someone who represented my politics was, you know, now a mainstream, you know, politician. But I, I had no idea at that point just how big, just how enormous the fucking task ahead of that leadership is. Because not only do you have the establishment of, you know, um, capital itself, um, you know, the the oncoming Tory forever rule, but you also have the people who uphold essentially the interests of capital within the Labour Party itself. That is something that only ever really became truly apparent to me in the wake of that 2017 election when we realised just how close things were and just how, if that resistance within the party itself hadn't been there, it might have been a completely different story. Yeah. Well, I mean, to, to sort of uh, to, to come back to your question of like, what did they want when, you know, the last leftist has turned out the the, the the light. What I always think about when I think about I don't know the the the, the West readings of this world is just like to me they they see themselves as they cannot fail. They can only be failed. So even if Labour drops to like a hundred seats or, or less and loses like councils by the bushel, it they will just say this means Do it's, councils it's, come in bushels. <laughs> It's, 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 um, no, but it's like austerity, you know, it's like the reason we haven't succeeded yet is because there's still a Trotskyist hidden among us or because the stupid public doesn't understand our clever thing. It's like these people that, and that's essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm a disgusting foreigner, so I'm not a member of the Labour Party for a number of reasons, but like, to me, that's why these people will, will stick around forever because they cannot fail. They can only be failed. It really is interesting. It really is interesting how I mean, it, and it's just every day the evidence just mounts up and up about how every accusation they ever leveled at people who supported Jeremy Corbyn is just them telling on themselves, right? Mm. A lot of it's projection, absolutely. And uh, yeah, you know, we we supported Jeremy, and I I did obviously in in, in twenty fifteen because um, I agreed with his policies and his politics and. I've been a member of the party at that point for five years, but from pragmatic basis that in a two party system, that's the only way you're going to ever get left wing 
outcomes from you know the, from the political process in, in an arena sense. So therefore, you have to join the most left wing party and try to influence it that has a chance of winning. That was my kind of rationality of for you know getting involved in any way. And then they, they, as you say, here comes this guy who actually represents everything I think, and I'm going to obviously vote for him. And I naively thought, I mean, I didn't really, I was completely unaware of the level of institutional opposition that there would be. Um, you know, in the in the bureaucracy and in in the terms of the faction. Because you have to remember, when he won, I, I mean, I, as I'm sure a lot of people who voted for him thought, you know, okay, he's going to get a fair crack of the whip now. He's won overwhelmingly. The party's got no choice but mm. to sort of get behind him if they want to win and be in government. That was obviously not the case, and I it was brought into sharp focus obviously when I started working for him, and um, mm. which was sort of about ten months or so later after he got got elected. Yeah, I mean, it it, it was um, pretty astonishing the level of ma- malevolence and uh, briefing mm. against him and obstruction and every possible roadblock they could put in the way they did. And I, uh, yeah, um, I'm looking forward to Seamus Milne's book. Put it that way. <laughs> to me, what seems to be an illustrative example is what's going on now. And let me. You know, this is Robert's pronunciation hour again. In uh, mm-hmm. in Hartlepool is uh, <coughs> is this business of the previous guy had to step down because of a number of very serious uh, allegations. Um, reasons. <laughs> yeah, uh, I know how much David loves it when we do libel on this podcast. So I'm gonna, you know, not. <laughs> Look, at least it's only it allegations. Only be libel at this point. <laughs> Jamie's not on today, so we're pretty safe with that regard. <laughs> Uh, but is this idea that they have this poor something rather um, is is now being clearly moved in by the leadership? Um, and just this evening, right before we started recording, uh, Seb Payne of the FT posted an, a long email uh, from the secretary of the of the Hartlepool Labour Party, um, you know, saying that. Um, Paul will accept the offer. Apparently, the offer is already out there that he will be the candidate. You know, and it's just completely. I mean, it's clearly a stitch up, and they even mention it. I'll read from directly from the email. The left will make a big deal of of us anointing a candidate and paint the election as a stitch up. We need to make it clear that these arrangements are local and that in the absence of a full selection process, which there won't be because they've ensured that there isn't, um, and the choice of a local candidate, Paul is the choice of the CLP. So it's like, and, and just to make sure that like this, this guy, Paul, I can't remember his last name at the moment, but um, the guy they, they want to drop in is a guy who's been really at the forefront, like hardcore Remain movement. And hardly Paul, I looked at the statistics, voted 70% to leave. So I'm like, if you want your hard, your like your right wing Labour lunatic in there, fine. But like, you can't find one who's not like have a track record in the Remain movement in in that area. I, I just I find it so baffling, and you know, it really is emblematic of a of a party that seeks to regain total control over the membership, which which was one of the Corbyn accomplishments, which actually to reverse that trend and give members some actual say. Yeah, I mean, failing to get um, open selections. Uh, during time, uh, you know, well, both just uh, with Corbyn as leader, the, and then when they had control of the NEC, it's one of those huge uh, failings and you know creations of future difficulties about uh, getting any sort of uh, left wing power back in the party. Because yeah, uh, all right, this is a, a, a surprise election. They may well not have had to go through 
the formal open selection stuff um, that was being proposed. But yeah, just, you know, it's emblematic of their, they're in control of the pathways to power in, in the party again. Uh, that was a lot of peas. Um, and um, <laughs> then, yeah, they're, uh, they're just going to abuse that as much as they possibly can. Uh, even if it does lose them the seat, you know, they're, they're happy in a sense, holding on to the, the shadow positions or only being parliamentary candidates. So long as there doesn't then become uh, a positive left force in a, in the parliamentary arena. No, is it, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it's important to understand, um, the, obviously, in the strategy to appeal to the gammon, uh, the, the gammon get their news from from newspapers. One of the you know the last demographics to, to you know uh, really overwhelmingly still be reading the newspapers. So anything that they do, as long as it passes the test of will the will the media like this um, or slash will they not mind if we do this, it, it is kind of gives it the green light and no one in the media is really going to kick up a fuss about what's happening here because it it's a, ultimately it's kicking the left and the if Corbyn were to do anything like what Starmer and Evans have done since they, they took the reins it would have been you know Stalinism it would have been called uh, anti-democratic it would have been called you know every every name under the sun really but no one's the, the the media establishment, which tries to frame everything, you know, and, and succeeds in some respects. It, it doesn't mind uh, that they're flexing their muscles in this way. I think I've I've always thought of Jeremy Corbyn that the reason why he won was always going to be the reason why he would never achieve what I, at least what I think, and probably other people on the podcast as well think, would have been the ultimate long-term like lo- like uh, achievement with staying power which would have been to truly cement um like a member focused or member driven party but because as you say um any sort of attempts at um you know flexing the le- the muscles of the leadership would be portrayed as stalinism um, and you know Jeremy isn't that kind of person. He's ne- he's never going to be the authoritarian. You're going to run the party this way or else. Um, but I, you know that's sort of the double-edged sword, yeah, right? But 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 I, but I think that the lesson of the last few years is next time we have an opportunity is to do that in spite of the media and not try to. Not that we ever tried to really appease the media or anything like that. But I mm. think after 2017, there was a, a feeling that. We, we lack. We lost a little bit of our edge about a bit of our insurgency because we felt like we were very close yeah. to government. We didn't want to rock the boat. Not not that we didn't rock the boat, but mm. we, we felt like we had something to lose at that point. And I think before yeah, then, it okay. was like a lot of the things that we perhaps would have done had 2017 not happened, like party reform and open selections, all of these things that would actually have had a lasting impact and cemented the gains. We, we sort of backed away from, from the confrontation. And uh, yeah, that's definitely a lesson that we've learned. That's definitely like a weakness um, of the connection, I think, between the, the Labour Party and the Labour Party membership and sort of, you know, the, the more radical left in general. Because, yeah, like um, it's one of those balance of power things that as the party got a sense of, and, and you know, the, the MPs, etc., got a sense of, oh, OK, actually, shit, we might be in power genuinely quite soon then that's they start adopting a governmental mindset 
you know, not being friendly to the old legislation and the structures of the state. But yeah, as you were just saying, sort of a, a sense of de-radicalization, which kind of saps some of the energy out of it. But then if they kept a stronger, more, um, you know, more connection to the um, to the more radical extra parliamentary stuff, then they would the ones still be baying for, you know, nationalizing of everything, you know, the actual taxing of the rich, etc. And that would be pushing both, you know, the the movement in general and then the party and, and then the sense of the party itself still keeping that radicalism. So that's always the kind of the danger, I guess, of getting um getting close to power, but not having that kind of um radical connection to the base. Yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to sort of have one sort of brief more thought about the because I'm also conscious of the the time. Um, it, it's to look ahead at this May, at the, the the May elections and beyond that. It's one of the things that that we we've been told certainly ad nauseum by the sort of blue tick liberal belt in Dunt uh, Brigade is that it's not necessarily about the polling of the Labour Party itself, which is weird because it's Corona and people support the government, which okay to some extent. But that we also always must look at um, the, the the Keir Starmer's approval rating, and there was um, Bast- Aaron Bastani put out a tweet a while ago that a lot of the even the local campaign literature really prominently featured like Keir Starmer up front as like really the face of the party, and you know you may be voting for a councillor, but really you're voting for for Sir Keir, and and I just I mean his his net satisfaction ratings have plummeted, and they've only gone down. From sixty six percent approved to to nineteen, and that's just among Labour voters. Um, he's in the negatives now with with the general public, and even more negative among Tory voters. So I, I, oh, I love to live in the swin zone. But, yeah, but but it's it's an interesting, you know, like how do you do they honestly think? And this is a genuine question because, like, I, I'm even open to the idea that you know we are an outlier. Um, do they honestly think that this guy is the asset? I is is that is that real? I I don't what. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it, it is it is that managerialism, isn't it? And it's what Remain really was all about. It wasn't really about staying in the EU, the Remain movement. It was or stopping Brexit. It was about a return to a managerialist conception of politics and having people in charge that look like they ought to be in charge that we can be deferent to, like people who look a bit like David Cameron and, you know, wear sharp suits and, 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 and Blair and whatever. Um, it, it, it is vibes fundamentally. It's not really about any policies or a, a worldview or a vision or changing the country or anything that's tangible. It's, it's really just about feeling like the people that are in charge, that should be in charge are in charge. And that is exactly, you know, that it's, it's nothing, it's nothing. I don't think, I don't think it's anything deeper than that for a lot of the people on the Labour right. It's more just about how can I live out my fantasy of being a politician? Um, because I've watched the West Wing. How can I live out this kind of, <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's all it is. It, it, how can I, how can I be in charge and have my own kind of small bit of power, whether it's as a councillor or whether it's as a, you know, parliamentary candidate or whatever? How can I have my own share of that? Rather than I want to change stuff, what's the most effective way of doing it? How can I how can I stay in the job as long as possible? Honestly, though, like the the I think the thing that least qualifies literally anyone for being 
in charge of like well whether it be prime minister or in charge of anything is just being in charge for the sake of being in charge which mm. is pretty much the impression that i get from keir starmer but i think oh i can't remember where i read it but i just remember uh, reading that uh, one of my favorite quotes of jeremy Cor- about jeremy corbyn was the fact that when um he it was his turn to go for the leadership he told whoever it was that he better not fucking win <laughs> <laughs> And that, to me, is kind of the, is the quality I think that you need to be in leadership of something is to not really want to be doing it for, in the first place. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the few things one one of the few things that Plato got right with the philosopher king uh, concept of people who shouldn't don't want power are the people that are most suited for it. Um, otherwise, you end up with just people who are very good at I don't know they're sophists effectively they're just people who are kind of look look like they know what they're talking about and frankly you know as we see with starmer just there's no depth whatsoever to to him it is astonishing really um just quite how shallow his uh, whole kind of uh, his, his whole kind of political program is matt you've said before like you are still a member of the labor party i think Anybody who was on this podcast or in, in like the podcast crew who was a member of the Labour Party, uh, like Alistair, has pretty much dropped. I would be almost remiss in, in saying that David, among others, believes that the, it's time for the Labour Party to persocify and die uh, so that something better can mm-hmm. be born. I, I would like you, I, I'd like you to give you every opportunity to make a case as to why people should stay in the Labour Party. And I make no judgments as to whether people do or not in this particular case. Uh, the reason people should stay is that Starmer, Starmer, Starmer's leadership won't last. Uh, it might not even last till an election. And I think the best outcome for the left would be a minority Labour government that relies on SNP support and maybe even Lib Dem support. But as a Price the price. The, That's a big oof. <laughs> I know, no, but no, but the re- the reason I say that is the price of that would be that incredibly unstable coalition would be electoral reform, and if we get electoral reform and we get proportional representation, we can all go our separate ways and set up our own version of Podemos and then crack on. <laughs> Okay. But in order for that to happen, we need to vote okay. for Labour. So that's the thing. That's the that's the quandary. And it is, yes, it's a paradox. I want to vote for Labour because I want the Labour Party to eventually split. But when there is a proportional voting <laughs> system. <laughs> in order to kill Labour, we must first vote for it. <laughs> Have yes. you seen the film Alien, Alistair? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I have. Yes. Yeah. Just to understand Labour, we just vote Labour. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get me started. I'm having doing a whole like Starship Troopers thing in my head, where like Labour Party members mm-hmm. wear those cool black uniforms and you know hold their hands against the Keir Starmer fungus and go, "It's afraid." Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I just being conscious of the time i think shall we move on to comment or commentary matt uh, i'm assuming you don't listen to this podcast because you've got better things to do are you familiar with our game comment or commentary not familiar with it no sorry uh, okay uh, uh-huh. john do you want to explain it 
Well, basically, what we do is I'm going to read out uh, a couple of statements, and you will have to decide whether it's a comment or commentariat. And generally, it's a little bonus to uh, try and guess who it might have been that wrote it and where. Basically, uh, basically, we've got a few snippets of uh, whether it be for an article or a comment underneath um, an article, <laughs> and and they and they can be from literally, it could be from anywhere. I mean, I think we had just, we had just one. Just not Twitter. We don't do Twitter like, or Facebook. It has to yeah, be... not tw- not Twitter. It's like BBC or like okay. Conservative Woman or <laughs> anything like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, fantastic. Spiked, and then we're never quite sure great. if that counts as comment or commentary. Yeah, but there's a good uh, <laughs> a good possibility that people are actually getting paid to put these actual words into print. Let's do it. All right, you want to right. so kick us off with round? So one? are you ready? Hell yeah. Okay. I'm ready. All right. Okay. This year, St. Patrick's Day in America is serving an additional function, a highly political one, one that should worry those of us that care about the Irish Republic. Beneath all that plastic paddy pageantry, this year, St. Patrick's Day is being used to consolidate Ireland's new role as the watcher of Brexit Britain, even as the tamer of Brexit Britain. <laughs> So was that comment or commentary? I think that's I think that's commentary. The, the language was too flowery to be um, the insane comments that end up being under these articles. Yeah, that, 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 that's got to be. I think that's got to be Telegraph, isn't it? That's Telegraph too. Yeah, I just don't think I've ever seen a comment where someone seems to claim to respect the Republic of Ireland. So it must be commentary. I think it's commentary too. Okay, commentariats, and yes, you'd all be right. Uh, yeah, it was our Brendan O'Forehead. Uh, oh. spiked. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan O'Forehead. Uh, get it, get all... What, what oh, was that in, right. was that in the specky? Uh, that was spiked. Spiked, all right, okay. Yeah. All right, on to the next one. So, Labour is now voting against longer prison sentences for sex offences, as well as Keir wanting to reintroduce the free movement of people. Labour have learned nothing about what the people of this country do and do not want. Is that comment or commentary? Uh, Is that Boris Johnson writing in the time? (laughs) I'm going to say comment. Yeah, I think comment. I think. Mm -hmm. I think comment. Yeah, yeah, comment as well. It's just, it's, it's short and it's just blunt and it's claiming to know the consciousness of the entire public of the UK and I guess actually that's I was gonna say that definitely that, that does that as well but yeah it doesn't fucking narrow it down at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Alright, well, maybe I've talked myself out of that. Um but no I, I still think comment. You're still going with comment, okay. Yeah. Well it is a comment. And although we said we didn't use it, this was actually on the Labour Party Facebook page. Uh-oh. <laughs> 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 I think Jamie, Jamie put these together, didn't he? And he he, uh, he doesn't obey the rules, so um, I don't think we have a choice but to carry on. Okay. Direct all complaints to uh, well, <laughs> direct all complaints to at Wizard Cubes. <laughs> <laughs> Democracy may be under threat, but I am more worried about how the pious woke brigade are silencing freedom of speech in the US and the UK. Oh my God! Is that, <laughs> is that a comment or commentary? Is that Brendan on you again? Is- that sounds unfair. Imagine, imagine, just do these people. <laughs> if this is commentary, like these people get fucking paid by the buzzword. Mm-hmm. I swear to fucking god. Yeah, I hate that joke. <clears throat> That's commentary. I utterly hate them. Yeah, I, yeah, probably. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with Matt on this. I think. I think we've agreed on everything so far. <laughs> so you're going commentary up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Me too. All right. Well, this one 
was a comment. Ah. Oh no way! Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't uh, see. News. Yeah, I don't see the word woke out in the wild that much. I feel like this is like a real confection of maybe it's filtering through, maybe it's cutting through I mean, at last. I mean, it is you. You are right, Matt. It is a confection, but there are some people who have just bought into it wholesale, and they're like, "Yep, yep, it's the woke mobs that are causing my life to be terrible, and <laughs> everything I hate is the fault of the woke." And. <laughs> That was it, though. I was thinking the combination of Woke Brigade seemed mm. more like a mm. commentariat thing, because, you know, yeah, just comments just say, oh, those Woke SJWs or whatever. Like, the combination of Brigade made me think someone's trying to be classy. <laughs> it's an interesting sort of comment, especially in the week when uh, Ash Saka won her court battle against uh, the hideous woman whose name I can't remember. Oh, well, oh yeah, like a... reality has a place in any of these comments. Yeah. <laughs> Ju- Ju- Julie Birchall. Julie Birchall, thank you. Well, not thank you, but... Uh... <laughs> Regardless, you're welcome. Uh, her, Twitter, her Twitter handle is at Fags and Booze, but with a Z. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Nice. Isn't she like 60 years old or something as well? This is really... Mm. All right, are you ready for the last one? Go for it. Hit me. Okay, ready. i got to get myself ready for this one. <laughs> <laughs> from the right to the left, there has been a condemnation of the cops' assault on the Everard Vigil. Yet, from the same right to the same left, there was a widespread support over the past year for placing the population under something akin to house arrest and severely restricting oh, our right Lord. to meet other people in public. Whether it was the Corbynista left crying for oh, ever tighter clampdowns on what we were allowed to do, their chief criticism of Boris Johnson that he was never quite authoritarian enough, or the soft Tory set who have raged against Covidiots and Covid denialists by which they mean anyone who oh, suggests there no. might be better alternatives to lockdown. There was a depressing consensus among political influencers about the need to suspend fundamental civil liberties in the name of keeping people safe from disease. That's that that, comment commentary. I think that's a comment I think that's commentary. That was too long almost, I think. But oh, that, well, you didn't get screens that long if they're in the they're in the Guardian because all the Guardian commenters really want to be commentators. <laughs> I mean, it's just I mean, I, I, assuming it is commentary because mm. this is the kind of this is the kind of thing that they write where they just fundamentally don't understand anything at all whatsoever about anyone who is even vaguely left wing. They just assume that it's some straw man that they assemble out of whole cloth to you know mm. to to be up against and you know. Uh, but there's going to end up being a comment. I'm going to look like a complete tit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you're going comment. Um, I'm commentary out yet. Mm, okay, commentary out. Um, Toby Young doesn't get columns anymore, does he? Oh yes, he yes, does. yes, he does. Yes, he does. Oh, God. oh, oh no. Oh, oh okay, oh, then. Sweet yes, summer then. child. No. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had vague hope that yeah, for some reason he'd stop getting work, but maybe Ooh. that's. Too much to hope for. <laughs> as much as he'd like you to believe that he'd stop getting work, he still very much has it. Uh, yes, the the traditional "I have been silenced" shouted from the the hot headline column. Yeah. Um, well, then, yeah, commentary. Then it's going to be. I, I, I reckon com- commentary as well. Definitely. I think it's. I think it. it's yeah. I think it's commentary. I think it is Toby Young, but um, it might be Alison Pearson at the Spectator because it has that same fucking. I, I yeah. If I had to guess, I wanted to say mm. Alison Pearson as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, this one was a commentary app. Yeah. And it's Mr. Fivehead himself. Ah. <laughs> Brendan oh. is back. Brendan is back. <laughs> Double Brendan. Once again, writing for Spite. Oh, my God. Is that is that the last one? 
That was the last one, yeah. Wow. I did pretty good. <laughs> Normally I'm terrible at that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt, for, come, uh, for coming on and uh, wasting an evening with us. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Um, and yeah, good luck with everything. Is there anything? Yeah, is there anything you wanna wanna plug as well while you're here? Just uh, cleanupgambling.com, and we had a chat briefly about uh, before we started about Gamban, which is blocking software for um, people who get addicted to gambling and want to block access to gambling sites and apps, and that can be obtained through for free through a pilot that we've got going with Gamstop and Gamcare called Talkband Stop. And that can be accessed through talkbandstop.com. So, yeah, thanks. I know most, most people, when you say, have you got anything to plug? They say no. <laughs> There's two things. So thank you very much. <laughs> cool. No, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. All right. Yeah, um, thanks very much. And thank you, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to yet another episode of Podcasting as Praxis. And we will presumably be back next week unless we get distracted by eggs again. <laughs> Fuck's sake. You can't just throw that in at the no end. Milk. <laughs> no milk. Anything else wrong? Look, no, let's let's just knock this oh, on the fucking head right. before we Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Alright. Bye everybody. Thank, thanks everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.